Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Two private Baptist schools in Spruce Grove, Alberta, are refusing to adhere to the provincial government's new LGBTQ policy. And for that, argues the Alberta Liberal Party leader, David Swan, that the school should have public funding withheld. The uh, provincial liberal leader also wants the school boards dissolved, or says they should be possibly dissolved, those which disagree with the province's LGBTQ policy. The uh, minister for education for the province of Alberta also a couple of weeks ago posted an open letter to Alberta students online in which he writes, a few weeks from now, you and thousands of other Alberta students will head back to class, and when you do, you have rights that your schools will respect. You have the right to feel safe and welcome at school. You have the right to create a gay-straight alliance or a queer-straight alliance, and you have the right to name your clubs this way. You have the right to use the washroom that is consistent with your gender identity. I want you to know that I will support each and every one of you. Together we will make sure that the rights you have and the policies you school boards have worked on are being lived out in your schools. As Minister of Education, I've been working with your school boards to make sure that our schools are welcoming and caring. All boards have created new policies to support LGBTQ students, and they will now come to life in your schools. In the coming weeks, Alberta Education will be promoting new resources to make sure that schools are safe and welcoming. You can also reach out directly to my staff who can help you ensure your rights are being respected at studentsupport.gov.ab.ca. As we stand together, let's embrace the differences in one another. Uh, We will all uh, be better for it in the long run. That's from the Alberta Education Minister. Uh, Pastor Brian Caldwell joins me on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Harvest Baptist Academy, New Testament Baptist Church. And uh, uh, Pastor, thank you for taking the time. Good morning. Oh boy, we've got a little bit of a tricky situation with your phone. Let's see if we can uh, let's see if we can understand each other here. What is it? What is the Alberta LGBTQ government policy your school board is refusing to implement about, and why are you refusing? Yeah. Hi, Roy. Uh, good to be with you today. The um, well, there's a little bit of, of history here, Roy. This this goes back to when the legislation was passed. Uh, it was formerly uh, Bill 10, and then it's now the legislation is the, Alberta, uh, the act to amend the Alberta Bill of Rights to protect our children. And I uh, want to make it 100% clear that we are 100% okay with protecting all children in Alberta. In fact, our school board has a zero-tolerance uh, anti-bullying policies. But uh, I can get into the specifics here in a moment, but hopefully we got a good line now. Now, we can hear you. We can understand you now. Go ahead, please. Okay. Yes, so uh, first and foremost, for the over a year, uh, we've been trying to get a meeting, our school board, with uh, Minister Reagan to discuss uh, some checks and balances in this legislation to really help us protect our children. Well, well, Pastor, let me me just ask you this question. Why are you opposing the the regulations that the province has, has put in place? And they insist, the province is this, and you know what the liberal leader has said, that your funding should be discontinued. Why is it that, why is it that you're, you're resisting the policy? I, I understand that you want meetings, but we have limited time, so I want to ask you specifically issues that pertain to our listeners finding out what, what, what's going on. Why are you resisting? Okay. Uh, our school board is a distinctly Christian school, and we... Uh, our schools and churches reserve the right to have a distinctly Christian school, and our parents uh, roll their children in our schools so that they would have uh, Christian education here and also academic teachings and so forth. And we've been saying to the Alberta government from day one that uh, the the GSA, mandatory GSAs, uh, Gay Street Alliance Clubs, uh, these are not the best or only way to support students, and we have uh, good, uh, you know, anti-bullying policies in place for over 20 years. We've had safe and caring schools, and the Alberta uh, government's own data shows that we have a 95% approval rating from our parents, students, and staff uh, that we have. uh, What do you do? What do you do? Pastor, what do you do about the gay students, the straight students, the uh, gay gay straight alliances that the minister says in his open letter 
the government will is going to ensure is in in fact in place. Um, what do you do about that? Is that is it, that just something that you refuse to accept for your schools? Well, what we don't, well, you got to understand that disagreement does not equal, you know, hate. We're, we're, we preach love and we're harmless, but we're saying that he's got to let Christian school boards deal with these complex moral issues and their parents, first and foremost, yeah. um, from a, you know, a, a Christian perspective and not from a liberal secular perspective. And that's one of the big issues we have. And, uh, you know, he, he knows that our schools are safe, and I, we, he finally has... I got a letter from Mr. Reagan recently. He hasn't been willing to meet with us, but he finally gave us a letter. He wants us to clarify our policies, and he's reviewing them right now, and he doesn't think that our policies are acceptable. Uh, We plan to uh, meet with him, and I hope we will deliver this letter to him and ask him why are our policies unacceptable. They're just, you know, they're insisting that we, you know, have to uh, have this, uh, you know, uh, you know, this liberal well, well, pastor, agenda. Pastor, you know, I, I respect the Christian beliefs that you have in the church, and I have great respect for, for, for religion. And uh, I just have to ask you, though, given the fact that a significant percentage of your funding is public and the government has made its decision, do you not put yourself in, in uh, financial harm's way by opposing the government the way you are? Well, the financial side of it, uh, Roy, is we take the position that Christians pay taxes too in this country, in this province, and that all taxes are not secular. Right. And, um, you know, there's no reason why the government should be revoking our funding because we uh, are not going to be politically correct. You know, we, 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 we don't want a controversy or a conflict with the government, but they've got to, they say, we need to obey the law. We're asking Minister Reagan and the Alberta government to say, you didn't do your homework. You did not consult with our Christian school boards. That's well documented before this controversial, unconstitutional legislation was rushed through the legislature. So they passed it through. They didn't, they didn't ask you for your opinions. They didn't ask your parents oh, whose children attend your schools for, for their opinions. And I take it they, the, chil- the parents of the children who attend your schools are perfectly satisfied with the way you run the schools. Absolutely. In fact, they're going to be writing letters uh, to tell Minister Reagan and, and Minister, or sorry, and uh, Liberal Leader Swan that we have safe and caring and loving schools. And, and Roy, it's really important about GSAs here, okay? Understand this. They are not neutral safe zones. We are very concerned that they're a platform uh, for activists and different ones. It's, it's not only GSA class, but also activities. And it becomes a platform for activists and special interest groups to come into our churches and schools and advance an agenda, a philosophy, an ideology, if you will, that is contrary to our Christian faith and Christian uh, for, uh, family right, values. Right. Pastor Caldwell, I have to ask you to hold on. We have to take a break. We'll come back. We'll talk more with Pastor Caldwell. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Pastor Caldwell, just looking at the, the issue that you're facing and that your school boards are facing, you're dealing with a government that says, this is what we've decided you have to do if you're going to be receiving public monies, essentially, if you're going to receive public monies to operate your schools. So now, what do you do about, what do you do about lesbian and gay and bisexual and transgendered and queer students that you have in your schools? What do, what do you, I mean, what do you do for them? What, what do you do to, or is there just a decision that, it, that, look, we're a Christian school and we're not going to adhere to this government's regulations and rules because it doesn't conform with our Christian value systems? I mean, is that where the, is that where the line is? Yeah, a couple of points to look at. The schools are actually one of them and one of them is but that's... Pastor Caldwell, can I get you to go back where you were? If you've moved, your signal's gone bad again. Okay, sorry. Just is that better? Uh, a little bit, yeah. Just stand where you stood a couple of minutes ago, please, sir, if you would. I, I haven't actually moved away, so... Um, okay, well, it's technology then. <laughs> yeah. So sure. go ahead and, and just address that point, please. Uh, would you, okay, or if I can call you back on a different line, if you prefer. No, we don't have time for that. We only have about four minutes left here. So let, let's let's okay. look at something else that's been raised, and that's the issue of... Okay. And I'm only raising the issue that have been brought up in, in news... And, and, and conversion therapies, non, uh, non-gender-specific washrooms, how do you, how do you respond to, to those issues? Okay, can you hear me better now? Yeah, I can hear you a bit better. Go ahead, please. Okay, well, real quick then, Roy, uh, you need to understand that in the 20 years we've been operating, we have not had any student uh, come forward with, uh, you know, uh, 
transgendered or gay issues, nothing. I think it's the fundamental teachings of a home and a church, and that it minimizes a lot of those things. But back to a whole idea of uh, a therapy and all that stuff. We don't, uh, you know, uh, we, we want to make it clear that the parents are the ones that need to be involved. If there's any student that needs counseling and and uh, that sort of thing, and, and you know, we don't uh, claim to be the experts in all these things. That sometimes we're going to certainly share the gospel with children in our schools and churches, and we're going to evangelize uh, children. That's absolutely part of our ministry. But if they need special help and that sort of thing, uh, we're not. Uh, you know, uh, you know, see that that's, uh, you know, because a lot of these children do have serious issues, and some of them even have mental issues, but I'm just saying, in our schools, it's not an issue, and furthermore, if there was a child having a struggle, we would involve their parents. This uh, legislation right now says that you don't have to involve the parents, and uh, we would accept that the parents need to be involved. They're the best friends and support and legal and biblical, you know, guardians of the children, right? So there's all kinds of issues like that. We just want some checks and balances in this uh, Debate, and we can't have big government and special interest groups and activists uh, coming into our churches and schools and, you know, uh, overruling or undermining our ministries. Uh, you know, this is not a, we, we want all rights respected, but the political left cannot understand that they don't have special super rights. Equal rights, yes, but not special super rights. All right, now they're saying they're talking about public monies, but I, just in the minute and a half we have left, you also pointed out to me that uh, your uh, your church, you said to me your church and your and your property has been vandalized, and uh, you consider that to be potentially hate crime, which police have disagreed with. What's the story there? Well, yeah, well, that's previously at the end of the school year, right, we had someone spray bomb a sign, or just a peaceful sign asking for amendments to the legislation that you talked about. And, um, you know, we're not, the, we're not hassling anyone else, and, and it shouldn't come as any surprise that we would expect these activists and everyone, you know, that churches and Christian schools should be off limits. We're not going to hassle anyone. And, uh, you know, so, um, but, it, and I do believe this is part of a bigger picture, Roy, of this is starting to become pers- discrimination and persecution against Christians. I could cite the Trinity Western Law School case. There's some that are citing that uh, pastors and churches that are more conservative theologically should lose their charitable tax uh, exemption, be revoked if they don't perform same-sex marriages. Um, and then, of course, now there's this issue of defunding. Right, Pastor Caldwell, I'm I'm sorry, but we're you know we we have 30 seconds left. You're going to you're going to continue. You're going to you're going to fight this decision taken by the Alberta government. You want a meeting with the minister, and you're not going to just uh, adhere to the policy that has been presented to you. Correct? Well, we're going to give them a meet with the okay. Return that letter that he's asked for. Right. Pastor Caldwell, I'm I'm really sorry, but the the the, the audio is terrible. Again, and I do have to go because I only have 15 seconds before we have to take the break. Sometimes that happens with mobile phones. Uh, We'll talk to the pastor again, I'm sure, because this issue uh, will remain in the news and will remain to be talked about. Stay with us. It's the Roy Green Show on the Coros Radio Network. You're listening to the Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Even though the numbers of women entering Canadian police services are increasing, uh, they are no match for existing old boys' networks. And that is according to Western University sociology Ph.D. candidate Leslie Bikos. Uh, Leslie um, is a Ph.D. candidate in sociology. She's a former City of London police officer. That's as in Ontario, not the U.K., at least I think it is. And her, um, uh, Leslie, is it a thesis from here to zero, policing the police? Uh, no, it's I took the blue pill is the thesis. Okay, well, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's an issue that we have discussed at great length with police officers and civilian police employees from the RCMP and most recently with the Calgary Police Service. And one of my guests has been over a period of time, Toya Montague, RCMP civilian employee with the highest possible security clearance. And she's, a, as I said, a member of uh, one of the one of the members of the group of women police officers and police service employees who've been speaking on the program, and she's with us today. Hi, Atoya. Hi, Roy. It's good to have you back with us. Thank you. Because I want to, I want to start with you, and then I'm going to get right to Leslie. But Sheila Fraser's um, investigating on behalf of the Federal Minister of Public Safety of the Environment the toxic workplaces that exist in police services. By the way the media director of the Mounted Professional Police Association was on this program a few weeks ago, and he agrees that the situation is toxic, and he agrees 
sexual harassment is taking place in the in the RCMP. So has anything positively evolved over the last couple of weeks as far as Sheila Fraser's involvement with the issue is concerned that you're aware of? Well, I know she's working on it full stop, and she has a full-time employee working with her, and they're very responsive, and they read over all our material and everything we've sent them, and they confirm, yes, we've got it, we're looking at it. I'm meeting with her in Ottawa next week. I have three days scheduled with her. I look forward to those meetings. I think she, and they, I know they've been to RCMP headquarters for meetings. Um, so they're, you know, their sleeves are rolled up, they're digging in, and they're going to go, I believe, very deep and really highlight the issues. Yeah. But what Leslie's studies are going to help, really help emphasize, is what's at the root cause of the problem. Because so far we've been looking at solutions that are kind of band-aids, like let's increase recruitment or let's do some online reporting system that's autonomous. That's not getting to why it's happening, because you can't fix the culture until you really understand what's driving that culture and why policing is lagging so far behind in gender equality and respect in the workplace. Why is it still happening in this day and age. And Leslie's research is pinpointing that. Well, let me talk really to her. for helping us to understand. Let's, and I think that's going to inform Sheila Fraser's review and the other reviews that are underway by the government of Canada at the moment. Yeah, well, let's get into that a little bit with, with Leslie. Leslie, so we have the federal public safety minister, Ralph Goodale, who's been in the business of politics for a long time. He's been, I think, 30 years or so. He's been a member of parliament. I think he's done a pretty reasonable job uh, as the public safety minister. Now, he's, he's, he's mandated that Sheila Fraser, the former federal auditor general, who has a history of being very direct. She's been a guest on my show many times, and you wouldn't want to cross Sheila Fraser because she'll catch you if you try. Um, so, so he's mandated Sheila Fraser to, to investigate the toxic workplace. Does your research into the male-female police officer relationship suggest that even an endeavor like this is going to be successful, or is there something more fundamental that's required to begin with? Well, what I'd like to start with is that research in policing in Canada, particularly with female officers, and even more so when it comes to a qualitative style interview, which is what I do. So interviews um, of the issues from police officers' own mouths and perspectives. That's going to really help inform all of these governmental agencies and people working on things because we don't have a lot of this research in Canada hearing from the officers directly about what their issues are, what barriers exist, what they feel the core problem is within their services, and also what seems to be working for them. And we can't discount that. We also need to look if there have been positive changes and if they feel they've been successful. Mm -hmm. So uh, how toxic is the male-female environment in police services across this country, according to the officers you've spoken with? And, And you've said that you were surprised by how significant the barriers between male and female officers are, I believe. Well, I should point out for this study, I spoke to female officers exclusively. The next leg will include the officer male perspective uh, as well, which is, I think, important because that that was a theme that came up with the women I interviewed. Uh, They feel that the culture may be more of a problem, the sort of hyper-masculinity thing going on, that it may equally negatively affect male officers. And they really felt that I should reach out to males as well, um, it's not that they, you know, they believe that the old boys club lives on and certainly there's gender discrimination, but some of them inquired in their interviews as to whether it was so much gender related at this point and more just a, a fundamental issue with the culture and that hypermasculinity that doesn't accept anything outside of that identity. And so they felt that speaking with male officers as well would really highlight um, the reality of what's going on in this environment. Certainly I was, def- I was definitely taken back by the issues with some of the, uh, how toxic it was, yes. You know, there's something we need to point out here. We're not just talking about people who have a disagreement over who gets the coffee first in the morning and who has access to, you know, the, 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 the most favored police cruiser. We're talking about an environment where women find themselves um, bullied, harassed, abused, and we've, we've talked in, in great detail with women officers about that. And I spoke with a husband and wife police officer team from the Calgary Police Service. She, after 14 years, is considering um, leaving the force because of the, uh, because of the harassment that she experiences. And he's a sergeant in a different division of the uh, CPS, Calgary Police Service, and he has to deal with trying to take, you know, protect his wife 
Um, and, and you hear these stories and they become, they become particularly difficult to deal with. It's not just after a while. It's not anecdotal, Leslie. There's far too many of them. So um, what, you know, what do the women most want, the ones you spoke with, most want to see changed and done? What's most important? Well, uh, they didn't comment on on that um, exclusively, and I'll tell you why. Um, Most of the women I spoke to felt powerless to change the culture. Um, They spoke about uh, just sort of putting their heads down and trying to get through their day-to-day work and ignoring what was going on around them because the police culture has been very successful about personally and professionally um, isolating officers who do try to push back. And I think that that's been a, a very successful movement informally on their behalf to quiet dissent. So a lot of people that I spoke with just said, you know what, I just want to get through my career. They didn't agree with, with what was happening, but they also felt powerless to change it. And I have to say that since this all broke, you know, this week has been, has been a media whirlwind, and I have heard now from over 60 officers nationwide wanting to participate in this next leg of the study. And I think that speaks to both men and women, and I think that speaks to the real uh, depth of the problem. Well, no question. Uh, I mean, we've been talking about uh, about this for five years on this program with RCMP officers and uh, Toya's been, what, you've been on talking to me about this uh, this issue for about two years now, I think, Toya. Uh, I haven't been, but I only... This past year, but uh, my colleagues certainly have been on yeah. your show at least that long. Yes, absolutely. when you when you hear Leslie speak to the issues that she hears from uh, women police officers, this is this all really um, uh, corresponds with 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 the concerns you've raised. One hundred percent. In fact, you know what I find? It's actually quite healing because it's validating for one thing for women to hear all of this being spoken about in the media when you're out there going to work every day and suffering in silence and you hear about these stories from women you've never met you think oh it's not just me and it depersonalizes the situation you start to fundamentally realize there's nothing you're doing to bring this on it's not your fault it is a culture and you are helpless to fix it and all you're doing is showing up to work it's nothing to do with your personality has nothing to do with your behavior has nothing to do with your work ethic or your um, performance at work and has everything to do with the culture which Leslie's seeking to truly grasp and understand with her research and I find that that's actually not just helpful to understand as a victim but it's healing because you can stop that whole you know, process of beating yourself up, like, what could I have done to change this? What could I have done to make yeah. the outcome better for me so I wouldn't be where I am today? And, the, you know, it helps. It really helps to see this as a, a proper study and research. And I think the government really needs to pay very close attention to the results of her study and let those form, help form their decisions moving forward in terms of how do we change this culture once Leslie, and for all. Leslie, how, how much interest has the federal government shown in your study? Well, uh, nothing yet, but to be fair, it was just released uh, media-wise a week ago. What I did find interesting, though, is I've only had one administrator in southwestern Ontario, well, nationwide, reach out to me. Um, Well, he didn't even actually reach out to me. It was just that uh, the CBC had interviewed um, the chief of um, Waterloo, and after my interview with them, and I reached out to him on Twitter and said that I thought it was great that he was talking about this and I would like to speak with him. And uh, so far, uh, he's been the only one at uh, an administration level that's even talked about this issue publicly. Are you surprised? No. no <laughs> but I, I, uh, I wish I. it was different. Neither am I. Although I did uh, read in one story that um, the spokesperson for the Ontario Association of Chiefs of Police isn't surprised at your findings. No, and that was wonderful that uh, they spoke out um, because I, you know, it lended credibility to what I'm finding. And, I mean, at the end of the day... We can't ignore these themes. I mean, these, these women's stories are true. No. They're from themselves, and, and they're pointing these things out. And uh, for people who maybe would argue against them, I would counter with, you know, Statistics Canada uh, shows that the numbers of police forces in Canada are still 80% predominantly white men. The numbers don't lie. You know, 12% of women are in senior management positions. That in itself is an issue. So, you know, even if you, if you want to look at the hardcore facts, so to speak, they suggest there's an issue in police forces when it comes to gender parity. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, political correctness. Let's get a political correctness. All right. We've talked a lot about political correctness and, 
And, and it becomes a frustrating reality for people because political correctness seems to at times exist for only for, 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 for its own um, needs. And it's used to, and I've heard people say this on this program, we've said it on this program, that it is used, it is employed to intimidate people and are not speaking their minds. Because accusations are directed your way, like Premier Wynne of Ontario and Premier Cuillard of uh, Quebec saying when not so long ago, just after the election of Justin Trudeau's government, Canadians in significant majority numbers were expressing their concern that security um, arrangements, security screening, may not be what it should be for the Syrian refugees the government was pledging to bring into this country. 25, then 50,000. And shortly afterward, Premier Wynne and Premier Cuillard suggested, well, you know, that probably was sort of a racist tendency that was rising among Canadians. No, it wasn't. She called us all racists if we questioned the security screening. And who called her to task immediately? The former Premier of British Columbia, Hujal Dosanjh, who himself was an immigrant from India. And he took uh, Premier Wynne to task. I don't think Premier responded. Doesn't tend to respond very much, does she? So political correctness is uh, what Angus Reid polling got at with Canadians. And the majority of Canadians say political correctness has gone too far. I'm quoting from the Angus Reid release. And joining me on the program to talk about this is Shaki Curl. She's the executive director of Angus Reid polling. It's such, a, such an important issue to, uh, to get at, Shaki. And the, and the numbers are, well, the numbers are, are quite telling. So before we get, thank you for joining us. Before we get into the numbers, did, did you define what political correctness is when you called people? Or did you just ask them about political correctness? Well, hi, Roy. Happy to be here. Always a pleasure to be with you. Um, we poll online, and so we have the ability to really sort of put um, words in front of people, put definitions in front of people. But, you know, when it comes to political correctness, this isn't, this isn't a new debate. This isn't a new issue that we like to uh, talk about as Canadians and, frankly, across North America. And this is certainly not the first time I've done talk radio talking about political correctness. So sometimes you don't need to define a giraffe for people to know what a giraffe is. People get it. They yeah, understand they the concept and the notion of, of political correctness. Yeah. Uh, and they have such a typically Canadian response to it. And I'll explain what I mean. So on one hand, big majorities of us in this country believe that political correctness has gone too far. Uh, a vast majority of us uh, believe that uh, people are too easily offended by words and language used in day-to-day -day, uh, day -day discourse. But at the same time, uh, we are inclined to hold our tongues uh, quite a bit of the time uh, and not say things. And, and we subscribe to the notion that there are certain things that you just shouldn't say in front of strangers. And why, as Canadians, do we do this? Because we want to be polite. And because we don't want to give offense. That's the reason Canadians identify for self-censoring and for holding their tongues. So on one hand, political correctness has gone too far in the minds of Canadians. On the other hand, when it comes to fastening those shackles of political correctness, we're actually sometimes putting those shackles on our own ankles. So we're in conflict with ourselves. Very Canadian. We don't want to give offense. Very Canadian. Well, well said. Yeah, seventy-eight percent of Canadians agree there are certain things you just shouldn't express in front of people you don't know, while eighty percent believe it seems like you can't say anything without offending someone these days. And then you got sixty-seven percent of Canadians saying too many people are easily offended over the language of others. What does that mean? Well, I think 
there's a sense that, uh, you know, I think, and, and I come from a minority background. I know what it is to have racial epithets hurled at me, uh, especially when I was a kid. It doesn't happen anymore. Maybe thank political correctness for that. I think we went through a period 30, 40 years ago where we got out of the habit of being deliberate jerks about describing people in certain ways and being deliberately uh, negative in the way that we uh, describe people. Call that the Archie Bunker era, right? You know, Archie was wanted to say all kinds of things, but frankly, some of those things you just don't say. And people didn't want to And you don't want to say anymore. Uh, yeah. And they don't want to say it anymore, and they recognize that, you know what, that probably was unnecessarily hurtful. It was wrong. It was, it was just kind of a jerk thing to do when we got out of the, the business of, of saying those things. There's certain words, there's certain epithets you just don't say in polite company. But is that, what it's, is that what the survey but is about, uh, Shaki? Was no, that what the survey was about? I think now we're into, and we talk about this, sort of the notion that you can't talk about certain things, you can't say certain things, that politicians, you, you used uh, the example of Premier Wynne, an excellent example, here out on the west coast of Canada, uh, when we talk about offshore money driving up real estate prices in Greater Vancouver and in Toronto, uh, there are politicians who will say, well, this is anti-Asian sentiment, this is racist sentiment in another way. No, it's a sentiment that we're being too lax with the, the offshore money we're allowing into the country. So this is what people are bristling at now. Mm-hmm. It is not about being deliberately hurtful or deliberately thoughtless or careless. It is now about this sense that you just can't say anything without somebody almost using political correctness as a crutch. No, I, wanna, I, I just want to read this to you. I read it last hour. I read it yesterday. We talked about it yesterday. And it being the Peel Board of Education deciding, or at least the Director of Education has said, that by the end of the school year, no longer will any clothing bearing the logos of, for example, the Chicago Blackhawks, the Atlanta Braves, the Kansas City Chiefs, the Washington Redskins, be allowed to be worn to school because it would be potentially hurtful to people. So we talked about it, and I talked to with a with a, uh, a broadcaster from a Chicago sports station about this because he'd written a column about it online, and they were talking about it on, on air. Mm-hmm. So, we, so, so I brought this up. So now here's the email that I received. Hi, Roy. I'm an Ojibwe Indian from Curve Lake First Nation. What the hell are you and Tim complaining about? We Indians don't care about the team logos of Washington, Chicago, Kansas City, or Atlanta. We're thick-skinned, and that's something we don't think about. Do you know what we think about? Poisonous water on our reserves, suicides on our reserves, murdered Indian women, etc. You people are white. Why the heck are you feeling all politically correct about something that doesn't concern you? Go Blackhawks, go Redskins, go Braves, go Chiefs. What's next? Feeling sorry for the Blue Jays? Great show as always. You know, and I, I couldn't agree with, with that writer more. I mean, I, I, am, I am not of the Christian faith, but I say Merry Christmas with as much gusto as the next person. And this idea... What, what what pisses me off, frankly, can I say that at the three o'clock? You certainly hour? may. I, you know, which just completely flummoxes me is this idea that the retailers and governments feel like they can't say Merry Christmas because somehow I'm going to get offended. Yeah. Give it up. Give it up. I'm not offended if you say Merry Christmas. Why? Because it's a nice, it's a, like back to Canadianism. It's a very nice thing to it's say. It's a positive there thing. There's no malintent in there, right? right? So we as Canadians are just getting particularly fed up with this sense that every day it's a new thing. And particularly that people are dreaming up new ways of being politically correct without anyone actually identifying a problem. And we get worried about, we we get worried before we open our mouths. Instead of giving other people credit to, to they'll understand what it is we're getting at and we can get into a really interesting and positive and a useful debate. How about just ask a question? How about Would you that? Be offended? Would you be offended if we did this? Is this <laughs> offensive to you? It's not my intention to give offense. No, actually, I don't have a problem with it. Great, done. And yeah. you know, you get Move you get on. you get you positive know? conversations going. You get you get, you get positive results. Exactly. You actually have some free flowing dialogue rather than everyone feeling bottled up and people feeling resentful, and then people taking this sense of misplaced resentment out on those who they perceive to be the problem who aren't actually the problem at all. You know what? I almost enjoy talking to you because you're the one pollster who comes on the show and doesn't say, on the other hand. Well, I mean, you call it the way I, you see it, I and the way the numbers, what the, the what the what the study I tells you. The data, yeah, you know, absolutely. 
and I appreciate your interpreting it because this is something that we have to get around. We have to, we have to stop being afraid. We have to, be, you know, we're all sort of living in the same place. So let's get together and let's talk things through. And when we can't, we hit a roadblock. We'll figure it out. There is an insidiousness, Roy, around political correctness that that we now see fomenting itself south of the border with Donald Trump, which is this anti-politically correct, this this Fox News notion of the war on Christmas, which I just talked about. It actually gives rise for bigots to speak truth now uh, because they, they feel that, because we all feel that political correctness has gone too far. And it's almost as though... Some folks are now using it as a wedge issue to foment some really bad stuff. So here is the net effect of everyone trying to be super polite and sort of leading everyone to a sense where they have to clam up. It gives those who want to really do some damage the license to do it because we all feel like this has gone too far. Shaki, thank you for the time. I appreciate it. My, my pleasure. Anytime, Roy. Good talking to you as always. Shaki Curl from Angus Reid Polling. We're back in a minute on The Green Show. Stay with us. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I want you to hear something now. This was live on the air on one of our chorus radio stations, live on air, with a contest winner, on September the 11th, 2001. Listen. And we're looking, you know, like we have a balcony here. The paper, you know, is flying all into our balcony, our yard and everything. And we, you know, we're... What happened, Allegra? Something just blew up. Um, Are you okay? Yes. That was a contest winner from one of our chorus radio stations in Hamilton in New York City. She had won a vacation week in New York City, and she was being interviewed about that week, and that's what she, how she responded to when she saw the first plane at the World Trade Center. Now, I'm away next Sunday on vacation, the 15th anniversary of 9-11. So a week early, we're going to speak with a good friend of mine, Dr. Frank Stecci, who played a major role in the immediate aftermath of the terrorist attack at the World Trade Center buildings and the Pentagon, which resulted in the deaths of more than 3,000 people total. And uh, Dr. Stecci was uh, engaged in establishing the identity of bodies too badly destroyed to be identified by conventional pathology and so he and his team engaged in forensic dentistry. Frank, I, I, I can only imagine how challenging it must be for you to remember and revisit those particular days and those particular hours in that particular city at that time and all of the things that you experienced. And I thank you for joining us and your willingness to, to remind us of what that day was about and how significantly important it remains for all of us. Thank you, Roy. I appreciate the time to uh, to talk with you and all your listeners as well. And indeed, it was uh, a time, as we say on November 11th, you know, we must remember the past if we expect to uh, improve upon the future and those who dedicated their lives and service uh, to everything that's happened in the past. And just listening to that recording, uh, it still brings just me to... It's difficult to hear. That's so difficult to hear. And she was just there on vacation, enjoying enjoying her time in New York City, when the world literally changed. Frank, are you okay to to share with us what your experience was when when you got that call and you were asked to fly to New York and and you were asked to become engaged? Uh, you know, I'll, as I always say, Roy, I'll try it and do the best I can because I think it's an important message that people need to hear, even though it's 15 years later. And uh, I, too, you know, at 8.46 a.m., I remember that day so well myself. Uh, I think everybody in northeast part of North America, it was a completely beautiful day, not a cloud in the sky. And uh, listening in my office, uh, listening to the FM radio, one of the Hamilton stations, and uh, a broadcaster 
you know, the DJ I know very well, uh, Sunny, she was just finishing up the traffic reports and and uh, the weather reports, and we went to a record, and about uh, 20, 30 seconds later, the record stopped, and I could tell just by her voice, uh, I've spoken with Sunny many times, yeah. something was not right, and uh, she told me we had the, she had the TV stations uh, apparently in the studios, and she saw what happened. Yeah. She we uh, we we all went through that, Frank. We yeah. all went through that that and morning. Now, yeah. can, can you take us to to uh, what happened when when you got to New York? Because your experiences there were what I will never forget. The broadcast when you shared with us what what took place. So, if we can, if you can take us to New York when you arrived and what you experienced and what you saw. Yeah. Um, well, I landed at LaGuardia Airport about. Uh, uh, you know, direct flight of Toronto, about uh, 3.30 or so in the afternoon. Uh, greeted, in fact, uh, in hindsight, it's almost hilarious because I remember the passengers looking and uh, two uniformed police officers and a, a civilian police officer, or kind of civilian clothes, meeting me right at the gang plate, uh, gangway there and uh, escorted me away very quickly. And uh, we went to directly into the cruiser and off to the medical examiner's office. Uh, you know, I wasn't sure exactly what the protocol was going to be, but uh, obviously the security was extremely tight. Uh, you know, going there, even the police officers had to give, show their identification. They had certain specific ones that were given to them. And uh, nobody trusted anybody as far as, uh, you know, the security aspect went, especially around the uh, medical examiner's office. Uh, the main what we call the pit, uh, ground zero, uh, around uh, one police plaza. And uh, by about uh, 5.30 or so, I was uh, posted to a team with the post-mortem team, which is the team that examines any remains we do have. And uh, so literally from the frying pan into the fire, um, the first victim we had to identify uh, was a... Uh, a firefighter. Do you want to take a break? You want to take a break, Frank? Um, no. Why, why don't we take Why don't we take a break for okay. for a couple of minutes? And uh, I, I can clearly hear, and we all can, the impact this is having on you. To uh, the memories must be really challenging. So we'll just take a break. We'll uh, we'll let Doctor Stetchy just catch his breath on this uh, on this experience. And we'll come back and we'll we'll talk to him about what he saw and what he contributed and heard from some kids too. And I, I know that was a very gratifying experience for Frank. We'll come back with Dr. Stetchy. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Dr. Frank Stetchy is with me from Hamilton, Ontario. Forensic dentist who worked um, to identify... There's no other way to put this. The remains of human beings at the World Trade Center 15 years ago next Sunday. We're talking about it today because I'm going to be away next week, and I really want you to hear Frank. Frank, I'm going to ask you some questions. Is mm-hmm. that okay if we do it that Thank way? You. Okay. Appreciate that. So September 25, the call comes, and you're tasked to go to New York and do what you explained to us you were doing. The first person you had to identify was a firefighter. and. Mm-hmm can't imagine what that was like, but let me take you back to when you arrived. What was New York City like when you arrived? What was the mood? What was the feel of the city? It was uh, 14 days yep. after the attack. It was uh, still tense. Um, it was uh, a lot of still confusion. A lot of roads were blocked off and, and so forth. But uh, let me say that my oldest daughter, Donna, worked with uh, uh, CNN in New York and my wife Mary and I met, went there many times, and I was born and raised in Windsor, which is outside of Detroit, as everybody knows. But uh, it, New York, was a place I would not want to go if it wasn't for Donna. And uh, I feel that that day, everything changed in New York. Uh, people were uh, respectful of each other. There was please and thank yous. Um, People opened doors for each other at whether department stores, uh, in elevators. They held it open and waited for the next person to come. And um, 
just a lot of respect. Uh, the one thing I remember so well, uh, the yellow cabbies. Uh, anybody been to New York knows exactly what I'm going to talk about. Oh, yeah, I remember them well. People would beep their horns and give you sign language with fingers and so forth because they had to be somewhere 10 minutes to go and everybody else was in their way. Uh, that changed dramatically. Um, when I was stationed at the medical examiner's office, we had uh, processions of uh, police-escorted processions of ambulances uh, that brought remains back to the medical examiner's office. And it's unique. Uh, it's at the corner of uh, uh, 1st and uh, 30th Street. And a little bit of a slant looking towards the Trade Center uh, location. Uh, but you can see the procession coming up, and everybody, uh, the New Yorkers that were walking on the streets, the ones in the cars, but especially the yellow cabbers. Uh, as the procession came, they all pulled off to the side of the road. The cab drivers and the passengers, and even the people at the sides of the street, just stopped. Uh, stood at attention, hands on their heart, until everything went by. And, and that was the procession going to the medical examiner's office, where right. where you were you were stationed. What was remarkable was, and I was there the year after for that broadcast, as you know. And uh, when I looked, when I got there, and I looked at the uh, where the World Trade Center had stood, what it looked like was a conventional construction site where something was going to be built. There was no evidence of anything having gone wrong, you know, so devastatingly a year earlier where, as you pointed out in an email to me, the 106-story building was reduced to about nine stories of destroyed structures. There was just this, this foundation, or not foundation, but this pit, as it were, prepared for construction. And it was all blackened by the fires, and uh, about the only thing anybody could recognize was the steel beams, uh, knowing it was a construction site, but there was no furniture, there was no computers, um, nothing. That was that one year earlier, when you were there, yeah. When you did did the work that you had to do, I, um, I can't imagine what that would have been like, but there must have been a just an incredible sense of purpose that was that you all felt. And it didn't go unnoticed or unappreciated because who did you hear from? You heard from kids. And how that, uh, in fact, you know, if I can lead into that, the Salvation Army and the Red Cross were there for the first responders, and especially the Salvation Army. Uh, I have so much respect for those people. They were there 24 by 7 for us. And... Uh, but one of the Army uh, families uh, in uh, Richboro, which is just outside of uh, uh, Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania, um, she's a teacher and had her kids in a grade 7 class write letters to the first responders. And as we'd go up to what we affectionately called Sales Cafe, it was the emergency response van that was at the medical examiner's office. And I remember her so well dental colleague of mine from Saginaw, Michigan, Bill, says uh, about 9 o'clock, 9.30 at night, that first night, he says, you look exhausted, Frank, and I said, oh, could I use a coffee? So let's go to Sells Cafe. So we walked up to the van, and he asked the uh, major there for a coffee for my Canadian friend, and the major looked and said, no, can't serve him here, and kind of stunned and looked, and he says, why? He said, we have no Tims here, <laughs> being Tim Horton's coffee. Well, that just broke the ice so nicely, but... After we had our coffee, uh, they said, oh, by the way, uh, here's a package for you. And they had uh, just like a, not a bushel basket, but a basket, and pulled one out. And uh, I got what I affectionately call Megan's letter. And Megan was uh, in grade 7 at the time. And it was wrapped around a Twix uh, candy bar. And uh, basically, she says, uh, you know, kind of to whom it may concern, if you will, and that, you know, I think you could deserve a break today, and uh, this is uh, my treat to you, and so on. I hope you can have a bit of a rest as you're enjoying this treat. And uh, but uh, again, mentioning to all the responders that you know that we were brave, and thank you so much for all the help you're doing in identifying the people and so forth. Well, 
uh, I still have that letter, and I did correspond with uh, Megan a few times after that. I lost track of her in 2004 after she graduated from, got into high school. That was grade 10, I guess, at that time. But uh, the first year, uh, she sent me a letter back and uh, said, I just wanted to let you know how important your letter was to me. She shared it with her uh, class and her teachers and so on. And uh, one thing that she really responded, in fact, I was listening to a program with this political correctness prior. And uh, I think, you know, your listeners should, you know, search it out on the Google or whatever. It's called The Americans, and it was by uh, uh, Gordon Sinclair. Yeah, we played that I, from time to time. I always, you know, remember that so well. And I took a copy of this with me when I was, went to New York because there was a few things that hit so well. Mm-hmm. And as we all know, the Americans, you know, whatever we want to think about them, they're the first ones there to help everybody else out. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, when it comes time to you know, help them, you know, as Gordon Sinclair says, you know, can you name one time that everybody raced to help the Americans out? Yeah, they never ask for help, Frank. When they don't, when you uh, and I won't ask you to go into detail about what you did. I, I can only, I can I can imagine that people have an idea of what you would have been faced with, but you did so much for families who otherwise would not have known mm-hmm. definitively the fate of their loved ones, and that is so important regardless of the horrific nature of the circumstance, ultimately people want to know the fate of their loved ones. And you made that, you and your colleagues made that possible for them. So you made that, you made that huge contribution. And I I want to ask you this in the two minutes we have left for this segment. Uh, What do we need to learn from 2015? You're a man who's on the front lines of doing such an incredibly important and essential task. What do we need to learn from that, Frank? Well, the main thing that uh, I stress this with everybody is, you know, enjoy every day you have because you never know when it's going to end. There are so many young family members that went to work, you know, 30, 35 years of age, expecting to come home for supper, and they didn't come home. Mm -hmm. But the other thing I found is, you know, we used the dental records, and everybody was very cooperative in medical records, dental records, everything else. But you must prepare. You know, we prepare for a birth of, our, of a child and so forth. We've got nine months to do that. But we've got to prepare for the death as well. Because if there's no positive dent or death certificate with a positive ID, which is what we were doing, families must wait seven years for insurances. They can't claim insurance, they can't claim estates, wills, marriages, uh, you know, businesses cannot be closed. And what we did was provided that positive ID, therefore they could get a death certificate and get on with their lives. Dr. Stetschy, I thank you so much for joining us. I I hope we haven't made it too difficult for you, but you did such an important job in 2001, and it remains important today. And you set the bar and the standard for so many others. Frank, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you us. very much. And then, Roy, it's not just me. It was all the other 256 uh, dentists that working as a team. But thank you very much. And, thank you, uh, Frank. All the best. All the very best to you, Dr. Frank Stetchy and uh, his wife, Mary. They're just wonderful people. And what a task they did. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.